This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, October 14th, 2016. Episode 30, The Battle of Hastings, According to Orderic Fatalis. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This week, 950 years ago, ignoring the effects of later calendar reforms, Harold, the son of Earl Godwin and, as of January of that year, 1066, the crowned, though not undisputed, King of England, Harold was riding high, fresh off of a decisive victory in the north of England at a place called Stamford Bridge. This battle was fought on September 25th, and in it, Harold and his forces killed the Norwegian king Harold Hardrada, as well as the English king Harold's own exiled brother, Tostig, thus putting an end to one challenger to Harold's claim to the throne. And now Harold is riding back south, where news has spread that the other major claimant to the English throne has landed with an army, William the Bastard, the Duke of Normandy. On October 14th of 1066, These forces will collide, and the social structure, culture, and language of England will be put onto a profoundly new path. That's right, it's the 950th anniversary of the Battle of Hastings. I'm just guessing, but I suspect that British listeners have probably been inundated with Hastings-related programming on the BBC and in newspaper articles over the past few days. This anniversary, unsurprisingly, hasn't received any particular notice in America, uh, not that I've seen anyway. Uh, And while I would assume people listening to this podcast would be better informed than average about major events in medieval history, it's still hard for me to gauge just how much background knowledge it's safe to assume everyone has. But that said, uh, because this is such a big event and so easily Googleable if you need to catch up, uh, I'm not really going to say more about the politics leading up to the battle than what I've just done in sketching out that little picture of Harold on the road to meet his destiny. And there are good episodes of Stuff You Missed in History Class and the Medieval Archives podcast and History of England podcast and plenty of others where I'd encourage you to go to get the current historical perspective on Harold and William and the battle. We're going to do what we usually do here and go straight to one particular medieval source, which means we'll get a good story, but maybe not always the best facts. There are detailed narratives of the Battle of Hastings in a number of medieval sources, but all of these come from at least a generation later. There's one contemporary written account of the battle, but it's only a five or six sentence long entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And of course, we also have the remarkable illustrated narrative of the battle in the Bayeux Tapestry, produced about 10 years after the fact. Uh, But this is an event that absolutely would have spawned a strong oral tradition among survivors and witnesses, and so medieval historians writing 40 years later Uh, probably had little trouble gathering accounts of the battle. Though the fact that you have a number of historians from the early and mid-12th century all writing their own narratives from different collections of first- and second-hand oral witnesses no doubt contributes to some of the more famous inconsistencies across the different versions of the story, uh, such as the question of precisely when Harold fell in battle and whether or not it really was an arrow to the eye that brought him down. One of our own favorites, uh, William of Malmesbury, has an account of it in his History of the English Kings, but today we're going to hear the version recorded by Anglo-Norman historian Orderic Vitalis, a fellow saddled with a name that sounds 
a bit like it should belong to the producer slash financier of a 70s exploitation movie, or maybe the purveyor of some shady dietary supplement. Uh, but no, Orderick is just like so many of our authors on this show. He's a monk who spent most of his life in the cloister and has left us a large body of work and very little record of his own life. But he is at least two or three tiers up on our authorship scale. Uh, the bottom of that, of course, is texts written by no one person, but are the amalgamation of numerous cooks all stirring the broth over decades or centuries. Uh, and I guess the next step up is anonymously written texts. Then you get the authors who are known as little more than a name and possibly, if you're lucky, a job title or a place of origin. We've had a few of these. Then you get an author like Orderick, who has a name, an occupation, and a place, as well as some brief outline of a biography. Only after that do you have the authors who actually were famous enough in their own day to merit someone else writing up a biography, or a biographical sketch in a chronicle, or in some cases, a saint's legend. And you even have a few who are scandalous enough to merit writing their own autobiographical confessions, like Peter Abelard. Uh, but these last two kinds of authors are certainly the exception rather than the rule. What do we know about Orderick? As is usual in these cases, virtually all of it comes from references he makes to his own life within his work. So we know he was born in Shrewsbury in 1075, so not quite a decade after William the Conqueror took the throne. His father was a Norman clerk who came over in the service of Roger of Montgomery, one of William's inner circle, and later, as a reward, made the Earl of Shrewsbury. Because Orderick refers to himself as English-born, we can deduce that his mother was English, though since Orderick doesn't tell us anything about her, and there are no other records, she is otherwise lost to history. But this does make him yet another entry in the list of famous British historians who had mixed parentage, like William of Malmesbury, who also had a Norman father and an English mother, as well as Gerald of Wales, who definitely, and Geoffrey of Monmouth, who probably had one Welsh and one English or Anglo-Norman parent. Some armchair psychology might suggest that we shouldn't be surprised that a person with a complicated or conflicted identity might be drawn to untangling the threads of history. Uh, but back to Orderick's life story. At the time of the conquest, Shropshire, where Shrewsbury's located, was pretty much devoid of monastic houses. One of the criticisms of late Anglo-Saxon England that shows up in various medieval polemics trying to rationalize the Norman conquest is that the English church had been long in decline, and once great monasteries had been given over into the hands of canons or secular clerks, and that monks living according to a rule were harder and harder to find, and this was all a sign of the decay of English society. In this case, that complaint appears to reflect some reality. At any rate, Orderick's father wanted him to receive a proper education. So initially, around the age of five, he begins attending an English grammar school, presided over by an Anglo-Saxon priest who had been displaced from his position by the new Norman arrivals. But as we've learned, grammar school only gets you so far. So Orderick was packed up and shipped off at the age of ten to be an oblate of the Abbey of St. Evreux in Normandy, where he spent the rest of his life other than some journeys to visit other abbeys where he collected more research material, uh, these travels including a couple of trips back to England, though he never saw his father again after that initial parting at the age of 10. We know he worked in St. Evreux's scriptorium and library uh, because we have surviving manuscripts that he copied, as well as manuscripts of his own work in his own hand. 
He wrote a number of things, including commemorative verse, but his most important work is his Historia Ecclesiastica, or Ecclesiastical History of England and Normandy, in 13 books. This history was basically his life's work, with the bulk of it written between the years 1123 and 1137, though he was still adding to it shortly before his death around the year 1142, when he would have been in his mid-60s. He was relatively slow in producing his work. For example, he's born 20 years before William of Malmesbury, but William finishes his epic History of the English Kings around 1125, almost a decade before Orderic has written most of his work. But in his defense, Orderic had undertaken a rather ambitious project. His ecclesiastical history, not to be confused with the Venerable Bede's even more famous ecclesiastical history, attempts to cover the history of the church from the birth of Christ all the way to the events of Orderic's own day. It doesn't do this in straight chronological order, but takes things topically, more or less, and really the attempt at a grand universal history uh, is mostly covered in a quick survey in books one and two, uh, and that's out of 13, remember. And in the rest of the books, he specifically focuses in on the history of his own abbey and the history of the church in Normandy more broadly, which necessarily requires covering Norman political history as well. And then after the conquest, Norman history includes English history. So the value of Orderic for later writers and scholars is not as a universal historian, but as a historian of 11th and 12th century Normandy. Neither he nor his work was much known in his own time. Only two manuscripts of the ecclesiastical history survive, one of which is from the library of his own abbey and is partly written in his own hand. And furthermore, only one other notable chronicler is known to have made any use of Orderic's work in writing his own history. So his status today comes really from the rediscovery of his work by modern historians rather than any lasting medieval reputation, unlike William of Malmesbury or Simeon of Durham, or the Venerable Bede for that matter. His account of the Battle of Hastings comes at the end of Book 3 of the Ecclesiastical History. His version of events is heavily indebted to the accounts of William of Jumiege and William of Poitiers, whose books he's known to have made copies of for the St. Evreux Library. And in typical medieval fashion, he borrows uncredited whole passages, largely verbatim, from both of these authors in his account. There are some factual problems with Orderic's version. Uh, one of these we encounter right in the very first sentence of today's passage, when he writes that the Norwegian king Harold Hardrada landed in England in August, when actually this happened on September 18th, shortly before the Battle of Stamford Bridge on the 25th. In a different kind of lack of precision, he later says that William landed with 50,000 troops, which is a number that should not be taken literally. Uh, it's really just an idiom, like saying he had millions of troops. It just means a whole lot. Orderic also claims that at Hastings, uh, spoiler alert, Harold died in the first onslaught of the battle, which disagrees with almost all of the other sources. And generally speaking, military historians, you know, those who really care about reconstructing troop movements hour by hour on the day of the battle and that sort of thing, they seem to take a rather dim view of Orderic's version compared to some of the others. Uh, but fortunately, I'm mainly interested in the storytelling, and I think Orderic succeeds quite nicely on that front. It's not the Iliad, or even the Song of Roland, though Orderic is certainly influenced somewhat by the Chanson de Geste tradition, but his narrative still captures something of the brutality of medieval warfare rather well. 
Antonio Gransden offers a quick summary of Orderick's value as a historian, which I think is worth quoting. It's ambivalent in its praise, uh, much like we've seen from Gransden on some of our other authors as well. She writes, As a writer, Orderick's most notable characteristics are his untiring interest in and sensitive response to the events of his times. His interests dominate the structure of his work. He did not learn from the English writers how to arrange his material according to subject matter or in chronological order. Rather, he let his interests pursue their bent. He interrupts subjects, repeats himself, and digresses. His work has been described as being in, quote, prodigious confusion. The result is a very long book, full of vivid detail and unique information, but hard to use for reference. I don't know about you, but to me that sounds exactly like what I want to see in an author who's going to appear on this show. I'll be reading from the 1853 translation of Orderick by Thomas Forster, with a few adjustments of phrasing here and there borrowed from Marjorie Chibnall's 1969 translation, along with a few minor edits of my own for good measure. In the month of August, Harold, king of Norway and Tostig, with a powerful fleet, set sail over the wide sea, and, steering for England with a favorable Arctic or North Wind, landed in Yorkshire, which was the first object of their invasion. Meanwhile, Harold of England, having intelligence of the descent of the Norwegians, withdrew his ships and troops from Hastings in Pevensey and the other seaports on the coast lying opposite to Normandy which he had carefully guarded with a powerful armament during the whole of the year, and made all haste to lead a strong army against the enemies who had appeared so unexpectedly in the north. A hard-fought battle ensued, in which there was great effusion of blood on both sides, vast numbers being slain with brutal rage. At last, the furious attacks of the English secured them the victory, and the king of Norway, as well as Tostig, with their whole army were slain. The field of battle may be easily discovered by travelers, as great heaps of the bones of the slain lie there to this day, a witness to the terrible slaughter on both sides. However, while the attention of the English was diverted by the invasion of Yorkshire, and by God's will they neglected, as I've already mentioned, to guard the coast, the Norman fleet, which for a whole month had been waiting for a south wind in the mouth of the River Deve in the neighboring harbors, took advantage of a favorable breeze from the west to gain the roads of saint Valery. While the fleet lay there, innumerable vows and prayers were offered for the safety of themselves and their friends, and floods of tears were shed. For the intimate friends and relations of those who were to remain at home, witnessing the embarkation of 50,000 knights and men-at-arms with a large body of infantry, who had to brave the dangers of the sea and to attack an unknown people on their own soil, were moved to tears and sighs and full of anxiety both for themselves and their countrymen, their minds fluctuating between fear and hope. Duke William and the whole army committed themselves to God's protection with prayers and offerings and vows and accompanied a procession from the church carrying the relics of St. Valery, 
confessor of Christ to obtain a favorable wind. At last, when by God's grace the wind suddenly came round to the quarter which was the object of so many prayers, the duke, full of ardor, lost no time in embarking the troops and giving the signal for hastening the departure of the fleet. The Norman expedition, therefore, crossed the sea on the night of the 3rd of the Calends of October, which the Catholic Church observes as the Feast of St. Michael the Archangel, and, meeting with no resistance and landing safely on the coast of England, took possession of Pevensey and Hastings, and gave them into the charge of a certain body of soldiers to cover a retreat and guard the fleet. Meanwhile, the English tyrant, after having put to the sword his brother Tostig and his royal enemy, and slaughtered their immense army, returned in triumph to London. As, however, worldly prosperity soon vanishes like smoke before the wind, Harold's rejoicings for his bloody victory were soon darkened by the threatening clouds of a still heavier storm. Nor was he suffered long to enjoy the security procured by his brother's death, for a hasty messenger brought him the intelligence that the Normans had embarked. Learning soon afterwards that they had actually landed, he made preparations for a fresh conflict, for his intrepidity was dauntless, and his conduct of affairs admirable, while his personal strength was great, his presence commanding, and he had the arts of a persuasive eloquence and a courtesy which endeared him to his supporters. Still, his mother Githa, who was much afflicted by the death of her son Tostig and his other faithful friends, dissuaded him from engaging in battle with the Normans. His brother, Earl Gurth, spoke these words, It is best, dearest brother and lord, that your courage should be tempered by discretion. You are warned by the conflict with the Norwegians from which you are only just come, and you are in eager haste to give battle to the Normans? Allow yourself, I pray you, some time for rest. Reflect also, in your wisdom, on the oath you have given to the Duke of Normandy. Beware of incurring the guilt of perjury, lest by so great a crime you draw ruin on yourself and the forces of this nation, and stain forever the honor of your own race. For myself, I am bound by no oaths. I am under no obligations to Count William. I am therefore in a position to fight with him undauntedly in defense of our native soil. But you, my brother, do rest a while in peace and wait the issue of the contest, so that the liberty which is the glory of England may not be ruined by your fall. On hearing these words, Harold flew into a violent rage. Holding in contempt the wholesome advice of his friends, he loaded his brother with reproaches for his faithful counsel, and even forgot himself so far as to kick his mother when she hung about him in her too great anxiety to detain him with her. For six days, Harold sent forth the summons to call the people to arms from all quarters, and having assembled vast numbers of the English, he led them by forced marches against the enemy. It was his design to take them unawares and crush them at once by a night attack, or at least by a sudden onset, and that they might not escape by sea, he caused a fleet of seventy ships full of soldiers to guard the coast. Duke William, having intelligence of Harold's approach, ordered his troops to take to their arms on the morning of Saturday. He then heard mass, strengthening both body and soul by partaking of the consecrated host. He also reverently suspended from his neck the holy relics on which Harold had before sworn the oath of fealty to William. Many of the clergy had followed the Norman army, among whom were two bishops, Odo of Bayeux and Geoffrey of Coutances, with attendant clerks and monks, whose duty it was to aid the war with their prayers and councils.
The battle commenced at the third hour of the Ides of October, and was fought desperately the whole day, with the loss of many thousand men on both sides. The Norman Duke drew up his light troops consisting of archers and men armed with crossbows in the first line. The infantry and armor formed the second rank, and in the third were placed the cavalry, in the center of which the Duke stationed himself with the flower of his troops, so as to be able to issue commands and give support to every part of the army. On the other side, the English troops, assembled from all parts of the neighborhood, took post at a place which was anciently called Sinlac, many of them personally devoted to the cause of Harold, and all to that of their country, which they were resolved to defend against the foreigners. Dismounting from their horses, on which it was determined not to rely, they formed a solid column of infantry, and thus stood firm in the position they had taken. Thurston, son of Rollo, bore the standard of the Normans. The sound of the trumpets in both armies was the terrible signal for the beginning of the battle. The Normans made the first attack with ardor and gallantry, their infantry rushing forward to provoke the English, and spreading wounds and death through their ranks by showers of arrows and bolts. The English, on their side, made a stout resistance, with each man straining his powers to the utmost. The battle raged for some time with the utmost violence between both parties. At length, the indomitable bravery of the English threw the Bretons into confusion, both horse and foot and the other auxiliary troops composing the left wing, and in their rout they drew with them almost all the rest of the Duke's army, who in their panic believed that he was slain. The Duke, perceiving that large bodies from the enemy had broken their ranks in pursuit of his flying troops, rode up to the fugitives and checked their retreat, loudly threatening them and striking with his lance. Taking off his helmet and exposing his naked head, he shouted, See, here I am, I am still living, and by God's help shall yet have the victory. Suddenly the courage of the fugitives was restored by these bold words of the Duke, and intercepting some thousands of their pursuers, they cut them down in a moment. In this manner the Normans, twice again pretending to retreat, and when they were followed by the English, suddenly wheeling their horses, cut their pursuers off from the main body, surrounded, and slew them. The ranks of the English were much thinned by these dangerous feints, through which they fell separated from each other, so that, when thousands were thus slaughtered, the Normans attacked the survivors with still greater vigor. They were charged home by the troops of men, France, Brittany, and Aquitaine, and great numbers of them miserably perished. Among others present at this battle were Eustace, Count of Bologna, William, son of Richard, Count d'Evreux, Geoffrey, son of Robert, Count de Mortagne, William Fitzosborne, Robert, son of Robert de Beaumont, a novice in arms, Aymer, Viscount de Tua, Earl Hugh, the constable, Walter Gifford, and Ralph of Tosny, Hugh de Grandmanile, and William de Warren, with many other knights illustrious for their military achievements and whose names merit a record in the annals of history amongst the most famous warriors. But Duke William surpassed them all in courage and conduct, for he nobly performed the duties of a general, staying the flight of his troops, reanimating their courage, their comrade in the greatest dangers, and more frequently calling on them to follow where he led than commanding them to advance before him. Three horses were killed under him during the battle. Thrice he remounted and did not suffer his steeds to be long unavenged. Shields, helmets, and coats of mail were shattered by the furious and impatient thrusts of his sword, some he dashed to the earth with his shield, and was at all times as ready to cover and protect his friends as to deal death to his foes. Although the battle was fought with the greatest fury from nine o'clock in the morning, 
King Harold was slain in the first onset, and his brother Earl Leofwin fell some time afterwards with many thousands of the royal army. Towards evening, the English, finding that their king and chief nobles of the realm with a great part of their army had fallen, while the Normans still showed a bold front and made desperate attacks on all who made any resistance, they had recourse to flight as expeditiously as they could. Various were the fortunes which attended their retreat. Some, recovering their horses, some on foot, attempted to escape by the highways. More sought to save themselves by striking across the untrodden wastes. The Normans, finding the English completely routed, pursued them vigorously all Sunday night, but not without suffering a great loss. For, galloping onward in hot pursuit, they fell unawares, horses and armor, into an ancient trench, overgrown and concealed by rank grass, and men in their armor and horses rolling over each other were crushed and smothered. This accident restored confidence to the routed English, for, perceiving the advantage given them by the moldering rampart and a succession of ditches, they rallied in a body, and, making a sudden stand, caused the Normans severe loss. At this place, Ingenulf, Lord of Legla, and many others fell, the number of the Normans who perished being, as reported by some who were present, nearly 15,000. Thus did Almighty God, on the eve of the Ides of October, punish in various ways the innumerable sinners in both armies. For on this Saturday, the Normans butchered with remorseless cruelty thousands of the English, who long before had murdered the innocent Prince Alfred and his attendants, and on the Saturday before the present battle had massacred without pity King Harold Hardrada and Earl Tostig with multitudes of Norwegians. The same righteous judge avenged the English on Sunday night, when the furious Normans were precipitated into the concealed trench, for they had broken the divine law by their boundless covetousness, and, as the psalmist says, their feet were swift to shed blood, whereupon sorrow and unhappiness were in their ways. Duke William, perceiving the English troops suddenly rally, did not halt, and when he found Count Eustace fleeing with fifty men at arms and wishing to sound the retreat, he commanded him with a loud voice to stand firm. The Count, however, familiarly approaching the Duke, whispered in his ear that it would be safer to retreat, predicting his sudden death if he persisted in the pursuit. While he was saying this, Eustace received a blow between the shoulders, so violent that the noise of the stroke was plainly heard, and it caused blood to flow from his mouth and nostrils, and he was borne off by his comrades in a dying state. Meanwhile, the Duke had finally routed the enemy and returned to the battlefield, where he gazed on a scene of destruction so terrible that it must have moved any beholder to pity. There the flower of the youth and nobility of England covered the ground far and near, stained with blood. Harold could not be discovered by his features, but was recognized by other tokens, and his corpse, being borne to the Duke's camp, was, by order of the Conqueror, delivered to William Malay for interment near the seashore, which had long been guarded by his arms. Inconstant fortune frequently causes adverse and unexpected changes in human affairs, some persons being lifted from the dust to the height of great power, while others, suddenly falling from their high estate, groan in extreme distress. Thus Edith, Earl Godwin's widow, who once enjoyed wealth and influence, was now overwhelmed with grief and prey to the deepest misfortunes. She had borne seven sons to her husband, Swain, Tostig, Harold, Gerth, 
Alfgar, Leofwin, and Woolnoth. They were all earls, and distinguished for their handsome persons, as well as what the world calls excellence. But each of them underwent a different and disastrous fate. Alfgar and Woolnoth, indeed, feared God and lived according to his laws, and both died in the odor of sanctity, confessing the true faith, the one a pilgrim and monk at Rents, the other at Salisbury. For the other five, following the career of arms, they met their death in a variety of ways and on different occasions. The sorrowing mother now offered to Duke William, for the body of Harold, its weight in gold. But the great conqueror refused such a barter, thinking it wrong that the man whose ambition had caused thousands to lie unburied should be buried wherever his mother chose. He issued orders that the bodies of his own soldiers should be buried with the greatest care, and also gave all the English who applied for leave free liberty to bury those of their friends. After providing for the decent interment of the dead, the duke marched to Romney, and, taking it by assault, revenged the slaughter of a party of his troops, who, having landed there by mistake, were fiercely attacked by the inhabitants and cruelly butchered, after great loss on both sides. The duke then continued his march to Dover, where a great multitude had taken refuge because they thought the position impregnable, the castle standing on the summit of a steep rock overhanging the sea. But the garrison, however, struck with panic at the duke's approach, were already preparing to surrender, when some Norman men-at-arms, greedy for gain, set the place on fire, and the devouring flames spreading around, many parts were ruined and burnt. The duke, for his part, regretted the harm done to men on the point of surrender, and ordered them to be paid the cost of rebuilding their houses and their other losses. The castle being taken, eight days were spent in strengthening the fortifications. While he lay there, a great number of soldiers devoured newly slaughtered meat and drank too much water, so that many died of dysentery, and many more felt the effects to the end of their days. The duke, leaving a garrison in the castle with those who were suffering from dysentery, marched onward to complete the subjugation of those he had vanquished. The Kentish men, of their own accord, met him not far from Dover, and swore fealty to him, delivering hostages for their allegiance. So, thus began the Norman conquest of England. One interesting thing about this narrative is how it characterizes warfare. There's a lot of negative imagery here, and not just imagery of death and of lives cut short, but particularly of appalling violence. And I mean appalling. This is violence that comes with a moral judgment. This is butchery and cruelty and carnage, and that's on both sides. You have soldiers who are praised for their skill, for their prowess, and for their force of will, and William is credited with particular virtues of leadership, such as not leading from behind. But there's very little clear heroism in this tale. Certainly, the story of the conquest is frequently a source of mixed loyalties on the part of Anglo-Norman writers, especially those writing 50 years or even a century later. Many of them, like Orderic, are of mixed ancestry themselves, and so feel both a pride in England and its people, and also pride in the Norman bloodlines that now hold the reins of power. 
Orderic also displays the rather common disdain for soldiery that one sees from monks and clerics, who, after all, feel the need to reinforce their status as the most moral and right-living of the estates. The fighters and protectors are necessary to defend the helpless and to defend Christendom, but you don't want to give those mere secular powers a big head. In Orderic's account, I think there's also a marked elitist streak, such that the worst acts of cruelty are perpetrated by faceless mobs and gangs of soldiers, uh, whereas William, in particular, is somewhat insulated from this cruelty. Indeed, Orderic specifically cites William's compassion for those unchivalrously massacred. But nonetheless, Orderic doesn't flinch from criticizing the Normans as a greedy and rapacious lot who achieve victory partly through duplicitous tactics. His attitude towards the English is a bit harder to pin down. His portrait of a hubristic herald who seems to be a creature of unfettered ego is certainly not flattering, but even here, Orderic affords him some distance from the worst abuses. It's the English who are responsible for the murder of Alfred, for example, uh, who you might remember as the son of Emma and Athelred from back in our own episode 24. Uh, so he blames the English and not specifically Earl Godwin and his lackeys. And his sympathies for the English people whom he earlier characterizes as fighting for the defense of their homeland against foreign invaders, well, when those invaders are a Norman troop that lands in the wrong place by mistake, suddenly those same defenders become butchers whom William is quite justified in getting vengeance upon. It's enough to make your head spin. And fortunately for Orderic, he has a simple escape hatch from this quandary of determining the justice or injustice of warfare. He's plucked out of the moral morass by the helpful hand of divine providence. Thus did Almighty God punish in various ways the innumerable sinners in both armies. Which also gives us one of the often neglected answers to that great theological puzzler. Why do bad things happen to good people? Or good nations, as the case may be? And the rather Calvinist answer is, silly rabbit, there are no good people. One last little totally trivial side note I'd like to make involves the poor Norman garrison who dies of dysentery in Dover. In Orderic's Latin, two different words are used to describe this condition. One is dysenteria, which is a Greek borrowing literally meaning bad bowels, dysenteria. The other is profluvium, which means a flowing forth. This latter term is quite descriptive if you think about it. And it just strikes me as kind of sad that modern English has largely adapted Greek and Latinate medical terminology to essentially serve as you know, euphemisms for diseases that are gross. You know, it's another example of the privileging of Latinate words that's famously preserved in your Linguistics 101 chart showing how many English food words come from French uh, because, in fact, of the influx of Norman aristocrats after Hastings whereas the names for the stinky, smelly livestock out in the farmyard that have to be wrangled by the peasants keep their Old English roots. But it applies to diseases too. So you have beef versus cattle? Well, there's also conjunctivitis versus pink eye. You could contract tetanus or come down with lockjaw. You can have diarrhea or dysentery, or you could have probably the closest English equivalent to profluvium, a flowing forth, the squirts. And all of these colloquialisms are tarred with a juvenile quality, uh, which is kind of a shame. I like their blunt descriptiveness. 
Uh, but as much as I'd like to start cataloging colorful disease names, I think it might be better not to go down that route. Uh, at least not in an episode without some extra special content warnings for the squeamish. So I'll wrap it up there. Happy Hastings Day, everybody. I hope you all enjoy eating your traditional Malthos fruitcake while going door-to-door and crying out, Herald Rex Interfectus Est, as custom dictates. Since we're back from hiatus, it's time for a new riddle. Our next episode will mark our second anniversary, and so it's going to drop on Halloween. And to get us in a spooky mood, here's a bit of a spooky riddle. By countless teeth is all my body lined, The forest suns I touch with bite unkind, and yet in vain I eat, I throw it all behind. Once again, by countless teeth is all my body lined, the forest suns I touch with bite unkind, and yet in vain I eat, I throw it all behind. Talk about profluvium. Uh, There's a new horror-themed show just starting up on sci-fi now called Channel Zero, Uh, and this is not a paid endorsement or anything like that. Um, But its promo images have prominently featured a creature that is literally covered in nothing but teeth, uh, as in it has no discernible features other than this tiled coating of human teeth. Um, That's what this riddle makes me picture. But I'll give you a hint. That is not the answer. So I'll be back on Halloween with some medieval ghost stories for you. It'll be a lot of fun. In the interim, you can find us at MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can find out more about this and every episode and leave comments. We're also on Twitter, at MDTPodcast, or you can get in touch the old-fashioned way by sending a self-addressed stamped envelope of the digital variety through email to patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. So, until next time, thanks for listening. Harold Rex Interfectus Est. <laughs> <laughs>